ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last, and it's a pleasure to be here once again as we go down the road talking about wrestling history, hearing tales from the Tennessee Stud that have never been heard before. And without any further ado, let me welcome the man of the hour, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, here we are. We're coming back from Australia. We're back in Florida. So many people have enjoyed your talks about championship wrestling from Florida, and here we go again. Yeah, uh, we're, you know, we've, we've made that long trip to Australia, didn't spend uh, quite two weeks over there, and came right back and get right back into action, kind of where I left off in some respects. Uh, uh, I'm very young, um, I've not been there very long, uh, they took me and put me uh, in, in the Florida Territory at that time. Uh, they ran just one town on Monday nights, was Orlando on Tuesdays, they ran Tampa and they ran Fort Myers. Wednesday they ran Miami and they ran Melbourne or O'Galley was the actual town. It's a little town right next to Melbourne, Florida, on the opposite coast from Fort Myers. Thursdays they ran Jacksonville. Usually didn't run any other programs. Friday nights, back in those days, they would run Fort Lauderdale and Tallahassee in the northern part of the state. Split guys up. Uh, both cities were about the same distances out of Tampa. And on Saturdays, you might be in a small town. Occasionally, they would run St. Pete uh, in the Coliseum there. Uh, when that happened, if you didn't get on that card, you weren't wrestling probably. They kind of loaded that card up in St. Petersburg on Saturday nights. No wrestling in Sunday in, in Florida back in those days. I don't know. I don't ever remember wrestling on a Sunday in Florida. It's kind of strange. Because most places, uh, even when I ran my continental wrestling and southeastern wrestling in Pensacola, we worked Sundays uh, in Pensacola itself. So that gives people an idea of kind of what the cities that were that were being run at the time. And at this particular time, when I come back from Australia, there there's a Booker transition going on in the territory. They were really smart about handling it. They did not... Uh, send one guy out and bring in a total new booker. They had Leo Garibaldi and Louis Tillet, uh, and some people call him Tillet, Louis Tillet. Uh, they were kind of sharing the booking. Leo is still the head booker. Louis is going to be the head booker. 
Uh, he's going to replace Leo, but they're transitioning Leo out and Louie in. And they give Louie the small towns, the Fort Myers and the, the O'Galley or the Melbourne area, uh, some of the spot shows, and they allow Louie to kind of kind of work with the guys that he likes. He's, he's going to take a lot of the young guys that are here. We talked a lot about the great young talent that's in Florida at that point. And uh, Louie is going to take these young guys and he's going to work programs with them. And uh, by programs, uh, maybe a lot of fans don't understand. Uh, maybe we'll break that down uh, for everybody. Uh, might be good, Brian, just to explain how, how business operated back in those days and how, how wrestling got to be so exciting for wrestling fans. What made it exciting? And most people probably don't break down what was actually going on, but what you had to do is you had to take, let's just say two guys as an example, and we'll take me and Ronnie Garvin and we're in Fort Myers. Now, there we've got to get over we the, you start out not wrestling each other you start out wrestling other people you're usually on the bottom of the card you win you win you win you work your way up to a to a higher level uh, toward a main event uh garvin is doing the same thing he's winning he's winning but we're not wrestling each other finally we have reached a point to where to the fans that are coming to those towns to fort myers as an example uh, on a weekly basis they are now getting highly involved in these two wrestlers. I'm a baby face and Garvin's a heel. And it's only natural that at some point they're going to put the two of us together. When that happens initially, and it happens toward the end of 1970, is they start singling me out and putting me with Ronnie Garvin on a regular basis in Fort Myers. The very first night they do it, the town sells out. Uh, it's the first sellout that I've seen since I came there. I started, I never got to wrestle in Tampa, but a couple of times, and I've been relegated to Fort Myers, and that's my town, and that's that's where I'm going to be spending a lot of time. I don't know that at this point, but I'm going to find out that that I'm going to be pushed in Fort Myers, which gives me a great opportunity, but I'm going to go there. I get over, Garvin gets over. They put us together. Houses are just so-so until they put us together. And it's like electric. I mean, uh, I go in there that first night uh, and see a sellout in that town. It's really, and it's one of my first main events. So it's, it's a thrilling time for me. It's, it's really an, a great, uh, because you're working your butt off as a young guy and you want to get to the main event. When you get to the main event, you're proud. But when you get to a main event and you sell the building out, then you're really proud. So I, I'm in a good position here. I'm being pushed and I'm being involved. Now, so you've got guys, you get them over. Then you start to put them against one another. Then you start working all these stipulation-type matches uh, to bring them back again and again against each other. Ronnie and I, during this three-month period or four-month period between the middle of December, basically, until the end of March of 1971, we run a string of 14 consecutive sellouts in Fort Myers. And guys are starting to talk about it even in Tampa. They hear you guys are down there. So you're selling out that town night after night. There's a local promoter there, and his his name is O'Hara, Pat O'Hara. 
and Pat just loves me. I mean, Pat's coming to me and saying, Ron, geez, you're going to be a huge star. He's, he's, he's pumping me. He's wanting to get the best matches he can get out of me. He's probably over there in Ronnie's dressing room, giving him the same story. Uh, he's loving it. He, he's, he's adding seats to his building. He puts more bleachers into it. He, and it's a National Guard Army. It's a pretty decent-sized National Guard Army. And he just continues to add seats and add seats. And we just continue to, 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 to sell it out to where people can't get in. The people can't get there by, say, 8 o'clock. Uh, they're not going to get in the Armory at all because it, all the seats are already gone. So we're, we've got a really good thing going there. And Louie is kind of behind it, handling it. We have the opportunity. Uh, we go down on Wednesdays for TV in Tampa, and we have an opportunity to do interviews. The only towns we get to interview for is Fort Myers. It has its own TV so we're the we're on top there, and we're what's drawing money. So we get to do interviews, which is really exciting for me. You, you don't get an opportunity as a young guy in the business to do interviews very much. So I take full advantage of that. I try to learn from my interviews, learn from my mistakes. And uh, Ronnie and I are working this program in Fort Myers that is just kicking butt. So when I leave to go to Australia, I've, I've uh, basically beaten Ronnie at that point. And it was a loser leave town. He has to supposedly leave Fort Myers. And he does. I'm gone for a couple of weeks there because I'm on the road going to Australia. I get back and he sends in, the, he does an interview with one of the Infernos called the Super Inferno. Uh, J.C. Dykes is the manager of the Infernos. And he's he does an interview with the Super Inferno and J.C. Dykes, and he tells J.C., he goes, I can't go there anymore because Fuller beat me, but I want him out of that town, and I want you to have your Super Inferno go in there and take care of business and uh, take care of him. He's a young guy. He don't know what he's doing. And uh, so that's the basics of, the, of this match that we start out with the Super Inferno. Uh, there's a stipulation to the match that if I lose, I'm going to never wrestle in Fort Myers again. Now, I've just come back from Australia. I've been gone a couple of weeks. I show back up there, and the Super Inferno comes, and I'm in a position where if I lose this match, I'm through in Fort Myers. Uh, so I win that night. Next week, I'm wrestling the Super Inferno again. The stipulations change a little bit. This time, it's I lose if I leave, and if he loses, he has to unmask. So he... We do interviews again. We go to the match, go to the town. It's a sellout again, big crowd. Uh, I beat him again. He takes off his mask, and he has taped his face. I've never seen that before. Uh, so people didn't get to see who he really was. He had tape all over his face, forehead, all the way down to his, to his underneath his chin. You couldn't see it when he had the mask on, but after he lost, he had to pull the mask off. Then you, the fans couldn't see who he was. So they're very upset about that, obviously. I was upset about it as well. Uh, so he doesn't come back anymore. That's the end of him. The next week, Garvin going to come back, and he's going to call himself Mr. Fort Myers. He's going to put on a mask, and he's going to come in. Obviously, he does the interviews. 
The people know who he is. It's one of those deals where they know the voice, they recognize the body, they know exactly who it is. And he says, uh, I, and Gordon, Gordon's sharp. Gordon misses nothing. Gordon asked him several times, well, uh, do you are not by any chance Ronnie Garvin? And uh, he de- he denies it obviously. No, no, no. That's I don't know. I don't know a Ronnie Garvin. He does those type of interviews, and he comes into that match that night. And the stipulation is he puts his mask up. If I beat him, he has to take his mask off. Now, if he takes his mask off, he's lost to lose or leave town. He's definitely gone. He would be gone for good. That's the way things work back in those days. If I lose this match against Mr. Ford Myers, then I have to leave town. So big crowd, obviously. These crowds just continue to grow because of the stipulations of the match. In the match in which he returns with the mask on as Mr. Fort Myers, and I and I wrestle him, lose or leave on my part, and he pulls his mask off if he loses. We wrestle for 60 minutes. That is a tremendous, I think it's my first, I call them, and guys in the business call them Broadways. Uh, that 60-minute match is just a killer for for young guys. Now, Ronnie's a good worker. He's been around for quite a while. He's able to lead me. And thank goodness he does because you just, you, I start to learn from that first one how difficult it is to wrestle for an hour. You've got to keep the crowd and you've got to stay moving and you've got to be active in the ring. But you, if you blow up at the end of the match, you're matching when it's supposed to be at its best, it can be at its worst. And so it's very, very difficult to pace yourself for one for one of these hour matches. So that particular night, we wrestle for an hour. Bell rings. It's a draw. I ask him for five more minutes. He says, okay, I'll give you the five minutes. We get into it on the floor. And he posts me on the floor and rolls back in the ring, and the referee counts me out. I don't actually get beat but I get counted out. Uh, He raises Garvin's hand. That means I have to leave town. Now Garvin is there. He's wrestling as Mr. Fort Myers, and I'm forced to leave because I lost that match. We come back the next week. This is Louis. What we're doing now is we're working a program. It's basically what I used to call as a booker a program. You get two guys over. You put them together. You work angles in which fans love to see these return matches, and you throw different types of matches at them, and that's called a program. And this was a long program. It's basically almost a three-month program before it's all over, said, and done. When I come back with the mask on, I'm going to come back. Garvin came back as Mr. Fort Myers. When I lose... I'm going to go back in, wear a mask for the first time in my life, never worn a mask in my life, and I come back as the, as the challenger against Mr. Ford Myers. There's a stipulation to this match that it's mask versus mask. The loser must unmask, and they leave for good. Uh, Garvin turns my mask around in that match, and uh, I end up having to take it off. I can't breathe because the mat, the mask I wear, 
Uh, I don't have a mask. I borrow it from somebody. It's very thick and has cotton on the inside of it. So hot. And I think we wrestled 45 minutes that night probably, almost an hour again. And he gets my mask turned sideways. And once he does that, the holes in which I breathe through, nose and mouth, are on the back of my head. And I've got no place to breathe. And I was really thinking that I'm not going to make this. I could, I wasn't going to survive it. And I actually pulled my mask off in the middle of the match. And uh, obviously, I've unmasked myself, and I'm not supposed to be there. So there's a big controversy. Is the, you know, the fans are really torn by what's happened here now. What, the, what are they going to do? And they're wondering, am I going to come back anymore? How can I come back again? So we go into TV the following week on Wednesday, and we do interviews for Fort Myers. And what they've done is they're going to put us in the first ever NWA Lights Out match in Fort Myers. Uh, Lights Out matches, were they used them quite a bit in, in Florida. I'd never been in one. All of these matches that I just described, I'd never been in anything like any of them. So, so it's a real experience for me each week to go there and, and be a part of what's happening here. This program is really exciting for me. It's exciting for the fans. And this town is selling out 14 weeks in a row. It's obviously, it's, it's getting over. People are really into it. So, I get that we have a lights-out match, and the stipulations in a lights-out match were that every other match on the card takes place as scheduled. Then they take the announcer would go to the ring, and he would say, ladies and gentlemen, the next match is not sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, we're going to dim the lights in the arena. That's going to indicate that the wrestling evening is over. And this match that will follow the dimming of the lights, we'll turn the house lights back up, and this will be a, an officially unofficial match by the NWA, a non-sanctioned event in which anything goes, and there must be a winner. Uh, I'm going out there and wrestle with no mask. He's going to wrestle as Mr. Fort Myers. So we have this lights-out match. Uh, there's blood in this match. Uh and blood in several of these matches, as a matter of fact, because uh, it's it's necessary. I think it, it's kind of necessary in that it just it it this makes everything that much more exciting for the fans. And in this match, I'm going to to uh, beat him. I'm going to not only beat him. I'm going to pull his mask off. And at this point, now we're both there have been lost loser leaves have come back as somebody else under a mask now we have both been unmasked and we're gone from fort myers that's the end of the program i don't see there was any way to take that program beyond that uh and there were we did almost everything up to that point uh what actually happened here though and i'm pretty proud of this part of it brian is a uh, we graduated basically it meant that our matches were so good then that we had we had proven ourselves to be draw able to draw uh in any town probably because uh, towns are pretty much the same and people wrestling fans are pretty much the same same they see talent and they uh, they understand good matches and and what's not a good match 
And so we're we're going to go to Tampa for a long, long time. I won't see Fort Myers for quite a long time before I'll ever go back to Fort Myers. And and the same for Ronnie. Uh, during this time frame, I think twice in that 14 weeks, they put us on TV wrestling each other. And I had Louie tell me after one of those matches, I remember him saying to me, Ron, that's one of the best television matches I've ever seen. He goes, you guys are unbelievable with each other. And we just, uh, we really uh, kind of clicked with each other and we just had phenomenal matches together. What about those fans at Fort Myers who get used to seeing you and Ron Garvin in this long program and then all of a sudden one week you're both gone. The main event program they've had for an entire quarter of the year is gone. It it dropped. Obviously, the attendance dropped. Uh, it was the first time it hadn't sold out in, in three months or so. Uh, so it's, you know, and that's that's the bad part about running these programs is is they've got to come to an end at some point. And when they do come to an end, you have to have something else developing to take that place. Uh, Louis was a good booker. He was a good booker, but I think uh, he learned from that experience that he didn't follow that very well. Uh, we're gone, and he didn't have he hadn't developed the follow-up to us and that's what it took to make make your territory strong and just keep doing great businesses you had to be building other you had to be working angles underneath that match your main event match and those people are working their way to become the main event as these guys that are in the main event are working their way out of the program and when you can do that and you can continue that process, and you do it properly. You're going to do you're going to do very good business wherever you run, and it's going to be steady. You're not going to see these big ups in which you've got big sellout, and the next week you drop in half. Uh, my dad was always concerned. We talk about it a lot when I was first starting in wrestling about the ups and downs of the business, and he said. You don't want to have ups and downs. You want to have a steady growth, and you want to maintain those that audience and maintain that those crowds. And you only do that by good booking. You have to be a smart guy, and you have to realize who should, who should be working his way up and who needs to be working his way out. Uh, all of that is it takes a lot of thought by whoever your booker is. One of the interesting things here is it's a great display that even though Florida was a territory and had programs that ran territory-wide. You still could do programs that were exclusive to a specific town. Right as this is going on in Fort Myers, you're working a very similar program in Melbourne. And it's with Ron Garvin, and it's very similar to what you're doing here, but it works. Again, it's an exclusive program to that one arena. Yes. Yes, and uh, what happens is they've got these two towns running, and the the major town on Wednesdays when O'Galley's running, the major town is Miami. So you've got Jack Briscoe and somebody doing something in Miami. They're working a program there. You've got the big guys and the bigger and the more experienced talent. They're in Miami. I'm a young guy. I'm in O'Galley, but I happen to be doing a pretty darn good job in the ring, and that's because I'm following with a guy who's a great, great worker, Ronnie. And he's leading me and making me look good. And we are having tremendous matches. 
And so we're able to take the same program, basically, that's been drawing in Fort Myers and just relay it across the state to the far side. We go from the West Coast to the East Coast, halfway up uh, from Miami to Jacksonville is Melbourne. And there's where we're going to be going on Wednesday nights. And we do the same thing on that side of the state we did in Fort Myers. We start to sell out O'Galley uh, every Wednesday night. And uh, it was a great opportunity for me because I learned so much through these programs. I had these long matches, and we would have pretty much the same type program. We would do the hour in O'Galley. And we would come back with him in the mask and with me in the mask. It was a long, involved program, and we did tremendous business. I was benefiting greatly from it because I was getting to work on top for one thing. I was getting to be in a program for another, and uh, it just it worked great for me as a young guy. It helped me develop much faster than I would have had I not been in that position. Slightly off topic, but it came to mind a little earlier. You mentioned Tallahassee, and I actually don't know the answer, so I wanted to ask you, when did you start running Tallahassee with Southeastern in the early 80s? Because it had been a part of the Florida Territory, but eventually Southeastern takes over Tallahassee. We did it, I think, was probably in 19... I'm going to guess now. I don't know the exact date here, but I'm going to think... I think it's probably 1984. It might have been 82 or 83. I'm really, you know, uh, I've been so many places and I've done so many towns. I don't have exact dates, but I know that the reason we were there is because Florida was not doing as well as as we were. Uh, we 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 were actually drawing better in 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 the Alabama and in Georgia and in Mississippi towns than some of the towns were drawing in in Florida at that point. And uh, they weren't doing well in Tallahassee. And they didn't want to run the distance it was. It's 250 miles, and guys drove a lot. Uh, so that was a long trip. They were not drawing as well as they should have. And they asked me, they called and asked me, if I would like to run Tallahassee, it was we were already running Dothan. That was only about uh, uh, 80 miles from Tallahassee. So, you know, it wasn't that much a longer trip for my guys. We would stay over and wrestle in Tallahassee on Friday, uh, go back to Dothan, spend the night and wrestle in Dothan on Saturday. Worked out to be a pretty good deal. They had a nice building there. The Florida office owned that building. So we had an arrangement with them in which we got paid. They got booking fee, and they kept their concessions because they owned the building. And we did not uh, take money. We didn't take money out of the house to pay for the building. The, we had an arrangement in which they got paid very well for providing us the facility. We were doing pretty darn good business in there. What they allowed us to do as well is they took their TV out of Tallahassee and we put Continental or Southeastern, if it was Southeastern at that time, into Tallahassee. And because we had guys, I had been to Tallahassee for quite a bit when I was younger and starting in Florida. I had a name there. And we had a lot of other guys that, that had names that had been through uh, Bob Armstrong. 
spent a lot of time, worked in Tallahassee a lot for Florida. Now he's working in there for Southeastern. A lot of the guys in our crew were over there, and we did good business for him. We went in there and did did really good business in Tallahassee. And one of Lester's sons, Jackie, Jack Welch, he actually handled Tallahassee for the Florida office. From the day they built the building, he moved to Tallahassee, and he actually lived in Tallahassee and ran every show for them, promoted. Actually was a local promoter. He worked on some of the cards. He was a wrestler as well. But he was the promoter and handled their promotional business for him. We will return to the Sunshine State in just a moment. But first, a few words about the latest addition to the Super Studcast family. Of course, the rest of the Bob Armstrong story. The Bullet Bob Armstrong Super Studcast number 5 is breaking records every day. The honesty, hilarity, and humility of the Hall of Famer is a prime example of why Bob Armstrong was always so popular with fans around the world. This two-hour deep-dive Super Studcast format, devised by the stud, is changing the podcast industry by offering all fans the unique opportunity to get inside the head and heart of the stars they love at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Awesome questions from the stud and co-host, the great Brian Last, enables the guest to be comfortable and provides an enlightening and entertaining experience for everyone. If you haven't listened before, you have no idea what you're missing. For only $2.99, that's less than $1 per hour, you get the two-hour Super Studcast experience. Plus, two weeks later, the one-hour question and answer session from the listeners called The Rest of the Story. The Rest of the Bob Armstrong Story will be released to all patrons on Tuesday, May 29th. Each Monday brings you a new topic or personality for fans around the world at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Thanks to all of Ron's fans from the hardest working man in podcasting. The Tennessee Stud. There you heard it. The rest of the Bob Armstrong story, of course, available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. It was, I have to say, Ron, it was a blast to record the three hours that we did with Bob Armstrong. I really loved it too, Brian. Uh, and I have had so many tremendous comments. I mean, the fans, those people that have listened to that Super Studcast have just been blown away by Bob. I mean, Bob's honesty and his frankness and uh, his stories. And heck, I was blown away. I, I did not know a lot of things that came up there during the course of that, that program. And I think that's why these longer programs this the, the longer super stud cast you just have more time to get in depth on a subject and when you do that you're going to get you're going to find things out that you would have never found out uh, in a shorter program so yeah I, I was really pleased with it and I, I know people will you know if they haven't listened to these and you know take take the opportunity to to listen to one of them because I think they will see right away that gosh these are different it's a it's a different animal and uh, I'm, uh, I'm really happy with that one. That, that was a tremendous tr- program. We'll have more information at the end of the program about how you can hear that show. But once again, we want to say if you enjoy the Studcast each and every week and you want more of the Tennessee Stud, you can go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only. $2.99 a month. But now let's return to Florida, Ron. You're out of Fort Myers. What's next for you? 
Well, I'm still wrestling. Uh, now, like I said, I'm, I'm wrestling in Tampa. I'm, I'm starting to, uh, I'm, they're going to take me out of O'Galley in those situations, and they're going to put me into Miami. I have worked my way from being a young guy that uh, has very little knowledge and very little experience to being pretty, to gaining some experience and being looked at now by the bookers as this guy's got some talent and he can draw some money because we've seen him do it in a couple of towns. So I'm going to, I'm getting pushed, but what's about to happen now is there, they have run the town, West Palm beach. Uh, and it, they ran it quite a bit in the sixties up until early, I guess, 69, uh, maybe the early part of 70, they ran that town in the fairgrounds building uh, that uh, was in West Palm there. A small facility, uh, very hot, no air conditioning. Uh, the best crowd they had ever done there was about $3,500. Uh, that translates, I guess, and back in those days, uh, the average price was, let's say, uh, 3 bucks. So that translates to, you know, about... Uh, about a thousand people, uh, maybe a little more than a thousand people, uh, and they they're building a new building in West Palm, uh, 1970. They start working on building what's called the West Palm Beach Auditorium. It's going to be about a 9,000 seat building, beautiful building, round building, uh, perfect for wrestling. But they they can't get into it. They they have a problem. Uh, the city that does not want to put wrestling into this new building. Uh, that, to me, I didn't make any sense because most of the major cities in, in the state of Florida didn't have any problem with having wrestling in their building. But it's because it was a new building. Uh, and it appeared that they weren't going to be able to get into that new building. But my dad had a relationship not only with wrestling promoters. He had, oddly enough, there's a guy that gets the job managing that building. His name is Ralph Boys. He comes from Mobile, Alabama. He is a friend of my dad's in the 1950s when he's running Mobile and the Gulf Coast and and putting Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling together. Uh, Dad's doing tremendous business all along the Gulf Coast. This guy, Ralph Boyce, becomes a friend of his. And uh, now Ralph Boyce gets to be the manager of this West Palm Beach Auditorium. So all of a sudden, it appears that wrestling is going to come back to West Palm. It's been out of there for a while. And so... Eddie calls me up and he says, uh, Ron, I'd like you to come to the office and sit down with me and your dad. And we want to talk to you about a business opportunity. And I obviously I'm interested. I'm interested in anything that's going to advance me and, and make me a better wrestler or make me a better businessman. I have these dreams, even at this age, first year in the business, of being a promoter and, and owning my own company and running my own stuff and having my own wrestlers. And so I go to the office, and they sit and talk to me about West Palm. And they say, we would like to, we need somebody, a local promoter, just like we have Jack in Tallahassee. Uh, we want you to consider would you consider moving to west palm and living there and handling the promotion for us in west palm well it's like a dream come true for me i was like a no-brainer 
we did discuss a little bit, I'm going to be honest, about how I was going to be compensated for it. Uh, they wanted to pay me a straight figure each week, and I wanted to have a small piece of the house because I felt like I could do a great job for them down there. I had been around wrestling enough as a kid when uh, I was in Georgia uh, as a high schooler, I was putting out wrestling posters for dad. I was uh, setting up radio th stuff and doing a few small things like that. So I had done things and I had a little knowledge of how to promote an event on a local basis. So uh, I finally I talked them into a deal in which they would guarantee me $300 or they would give me 5% of the house. Now, if you look at the $3,500 as the best crowd they had ever done, and you take 5% of that, you're only talking about $170 or so, $1,750 or $175, basically. That's, that's not a lot of money if you're going to do a lot of work. And my intention was to, to do a lot of work. I was going to handle a lot of things myself, and it's going to be time-consuming. So they never expected the crowds to be what I was able to do for them. And they made a deal with me. They pay me uh, $300 or 5%, and whichever was larger. And that, that's the part I kept pushing. And they wanted to say, well, we're going to just, we'll give you uh, either 300 or 5%. Uh, and I said, I want to get whatever's largest, uh, depending on the crowd. So they went along with that. So I go to West Palm. Uh, I don't move down there right away. I stay living in Tampa because I don't know how this is going to go. They don't either. And I'm, I'm a little hesitant to move out of Tampa where all the wrestlers are and the office is there and, and the snake pits there. And I, I'm, I'm, still in, I'm still involved with a lot of that stuff. And I'm going to, I realize that once I live down there in a the city by myself, I'm going to be the only one there. And, I'm going to have to travel everywhere in the state by myself. There's a lot of trips. If I go to Tallahassee, now I have, instead of a four-hour drive, I've got almost an eight-hour drive just to get to Tallahassee one way. So, you know, there's, there's some thoughts going through my mind, but uh, we, we, we do a deal. And uh, so I go in the first time, the first time they get ready to run, and I go and put out wrestling posters myself. I put out 300 wrestling posters. It takes me almost three days to put them out. Uh, some people recognize me, which I didn't think was good for business, uh, but I didn't have anybody to do this for me. I didn't have anybody to help me with this local promotion. I set up radio interviews. I set up television interviews for the first opening night match. I went to the newspaper and they did a really nice article. They did it partially on me, partially on wrestling. Uh, so I, I spent three weeks getting ready for this opening night in the, my, in the West Palm Beach Auditorium. Uh, the first night there, we drew over $10,000. They were like, wow. They were just blown away. Well, I was blown away, too. I didn't expect it to do that well. But it really rocked, and and I was about halfway up the card. I got a pretty good payoff because I wasn't first match, 
And then they looked at the situation after a couple of weeks. The 10,000 grew. It, it didn't stop there. It just grew every week and it, slowly. And they realized that that I was I was getting over and they 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 started looking at me as being their man, their main event guy in West Palm because I live there for one reason. I'm going to be seen around town. Nobody, none of the other wrestlers are going to be seen there. And at my height and my size, I'm pretty recognizable. So not many people are going to uh, not know who I am. So it, uh, it, it works out to be a tremendous idea that they have of taking me and using me very well in West Palm Beach. And Orlando has been a Monday night town now for many, many years. It's Milo Steinborn's town. Uh, they get, uh, I think they get booking fee out of it, but this is their town. So now they've got two major cities on a Monday night, the best situation they've ever had in the territory. They can start their week with a big house in Orlando and a big house in West Palm at the same time. In order to do that, they realized that they couldn't send all of their major talent to West Palm nor to Orlando. And if they'd made me a star in West Palm, they weren't going to have to worry about how they're going to provide West Palm with a good card. So it worked out great for me, worked out phenomenal for them. And we started outdrawing Orlando, which was an established town had done great for years. Orlando's business didn't fall off. It stayed well, but West Palm turned out to be a hoss. It just turned out to be a monster of a town for him. Did you ever have any issues with your cut? Never. But there were a lot of times when I saw them and I, and they would pay me a cash out of the house. And sometimes dad would be there. Sometimes Eddie would be there. And sometimes they would pay me and I would see that look in their eyes about, you know, you cut a real good deal, kid. <laughs> you know? So that, that, uh, that 5% was running me. We within probably uh, three months, uh, we were doing, we were doing 16, 17,000. Uh, we were selling that building out and they were like, wow, man. But yeah, they were doing really great too on their end, and they they couldn't have been too upset by it. But it was a tremendous opportunity for me, and one of the reasons is because it laid a foundation for me to build upon for someday owning my own company, and it gave me the opportunity. I started in West Palm, but then they love what they saw, and and Eddie says to me one day, he says, "Do you want to run some small towns around there?" And I said, sure, I do, you know, and he, and uh, so he said, what would you like to run? And, uh, you know, I said, Bell Glade, which is about 50 miles out of West Palm. It sits at the southern end of Lake Okeechobee. It's a nice-sized little town. It had, in the wintertime, uh, 10,000 Haitians that came there to do work the sugarcane fields. It was just perfect, and so... I started running these spot shows in these small towns and I was doing more business in spot shows than anybody else was doing in the state when they ran spot shows. So I was building myself a pretty good reputation in, in, with the Florida office and with the boys. They wanted to be in Ron's towns. They said, Hey, uh, 
is he running is he running Bell Glade? And, and they whoever would say, Yeah, you know, maybe Charlie Lay at the front of the yellow. That that's Ron's town. He's running that. We want to work, you know, well, I like get in there. I want to work that town. You know, so I was really kind of making a name for myself and I was certainly getting uh highly involved with with uh building a building a a background that I'm gonna need to run territories in the future. What was the worst part of promoting a local town? The worst part? Well, occasionally you couldn't always you couldn't always expect that you're going to do well. I like to not run those towns very often. So I I would run this Bell Glade, it would sell out, it would do really good. Uh, then I would say, well, I want to run another one in two months, but I don't want to go back there. I did not want to to go there too much. And that's what a lot of promoters find uh, when they run towns is that they run them in the ground. Uh, Nick Goulis used to be a prime example. I remember Nick would run a town, and it would sell out. And he would go, wow, that's great, man. Let's run it next week. And, you know, he'd go back the, the second week, and it would drop in half, and he would still be happy with it. Then he'd go, well, let's run it next week. And and he would run it four weeks in a row, and he would take a town in four weeks from selling out to drawing nothing. He would almost kill it because it's a small town. It's not a major city. So I had that understanding of how it worked, and I said, no, I don't want to go to them very often. I need more towns. And sometimes I would pick one that wasn't a winner. I couldn't go in and promote it well enough, didn't have enough television coverage or whatever it may be, and it would not do as well, and I'd be disappointed. I, and uh, and so would they be disappointed, I'm sure, when they saw those numbers. But it was all in a learning process for me, and it was really good for me to have that opportunity. Let's get some listener questions here this week, Ron. And this first one is from Will Cutshaw in Greenville, Tennessee. I can't believe we have not asked this question yet. Ron, what brand are your cowboy hats? <laughs> well, I'll be darned. Uh, I'll tell you what. I used to, when I first started wrestling, I didn't wear a cowboy hat. I really didn't start wearing hats until I went to Knoxville, until I became the Tennessee stud. When I became the Tennessee stud, I felt like that that name in itself requires that I be something somewhat of a cowboy in one way or another. I actually started wearing boots for the first time, uh, oh, cowboy boots and, and cowboy hats. And I was buying hats that were just, they were funky, to be pretty honest. They, they weren't too cool. And uh, about that time, a guy from out west named, named Charlie, uh, Charlie One Horse, he, he started making hats. And his hats were totally different than anybody's Western hats. He would take little pieces of bones from little animals. Uh, he would take feathers from different types of birds. Uh, he would, every hat he made was a different hat. No two Charlie One Horse hats were ever exactly alike. He'd refused to make two hats that looked uh, alike. So that to me was a real, I loved it. The fact that I could buy one of those and I'd never see anybody wear one that looked like mine, 
because there wasn't any that looked like mine. And then I started buying the more, the, the better I got and the, and the more successful I was becoming, the more expensive my hats would become and the bigger they would come. But I stuck with the Charlie One Horses. And I still, to this very day, have Charlie One Horse hats, uh, probably six or eight of them, different styles, all of them different, obviously. And I just never got away from that Charlie One Horse hat. I really loved the guy's product. And people were always, would ask me, you know, because it was unusual. It was a different type of cowboy hat. And they would ask, uh, where did, where'd you get that hat, man? Where, where's that hat come from? And I would always tell him the name, Charlie One Horse. He used to take, this guy was so so good at what he did, is he would take, he would brand his hats. He would actually have a horseshoe shape, and somewhere on that hat, sometimes it would be big, it would be on the brim, sometimes it would be in the back, sometimes it would be on the band that went around it. There was always a, a horseshoe print. A band branded on each one of those hats. It was kind of like his trademark. Uh, guy made great hats. I would have loved to have met that guy. He certainly was phenomenal. I don't think they make them anymore. I don't see, I don't see them out there like they used to be. How much did a Charlie One Horse hat cost? Well, <laughs> the cheapest one I ever bought. <laughs> the cheapest one I ever bought. Uh, I still have. I still wear it to this day. It never wears out. It never gets old. Uh, and I think I paid $75 for it. But I have some Charlie One horses that I have paid as much as 500 for because they are unique. Each one is unique. And, and I wanted to have that that look. I wanted people to to see how I dressed and and the boots and uh, and my boots. I got into boots just like I got into hats about the same time. And I was buying uh, exotic stuff. I was buying uh, the rattlesnakes and the the uh, anacondas and the uh, that, all types of skins, uh, kangaroos, uh, uh, ostrich. I mean, it was like and and boots can be more expensive than hats. So, you know, I was putting a lot of money in wardrobe, but I felt like I needed it. I wanted to stand out, and, and those hats made me stand out. Those Charlie One Horse hats, they definitely made me look different than, than anybody else. What did your brother think of those hats? He loved them, but he was too cheap to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> you know how Rob is. I mean, with, with his super stud cash, you can tell right away, he's always, it's money, money, money to Rob, you know. And he would ask me, you know, he would see a new one and he'd go, oh boy, wow, well, well that's a nice one. How much? You know, and I would tell him, and he'd go, oh gosh, oh geez, you know, so. I was fine with me because I didn't want him wearing Charlie One Horses. So I just was fine. It was like too much for him. That's good. It worked out great for me. This next question is a really interesting one. I've never heard you ask before, Ron. It is from David Trailer in Anchorage, Alaska. Whoa. All over the world. You know how it works. I know, man. That's that. that that's first ever. I've first ever I've heard from Alaska. In 1979, you had a problem with Southeastern wrestling. The wrestlers that left your company to compete against you, were they ever hired back by you? Of all of those that left, who would you have liked to have had taken 
to Pensacola with you? Wow. That's a great question right there. Uh, it's got a lot of parts. <laughs> that's a, that's super. Uh, well, real quickly, I guess we'll run through, you know, for fans that don't know, and we're going to get to this, we're chronologically working there in that direction, but Southeastern Wrestling uh, is going to be very successful in Knoxville, and we're going to have a war similar to what happened in Atlanta with Ann Gunkel and the, and the NWA promotion there, and we're going to have a war, and wrestlers are going to, to mutiny. They're going to decide that they want in this case, in Southeastern's case, they decide that they want to to all get together and own a piece of their own business, and and they want to compete. So, uh, and we'll get into all that story at some point. Um, but the the part about this, so he's asking about who who the wrestlers that left the company, and uh, did I ever hire them back? Uh, I I'll be honest with you. Uh, I only hired one of them back that, that left and, and, and decided that they wanted to take my company away from me. That's, that's basically what it was all about. They wanted to own wrestling in Knoxville. And I assumed that they thought that I probably wasn't smart enough or didn't have enough clout or I didn't have enough connections to be able to compete with them because a lot of them left that were in that crew in 1979 and went away. Some of them, uh, Kevin Sullivan did not go with them. Uh, Bob Armstrong did not go with them. There are people that decided they did not want to go with them, but of the guys that left, I did hire one of them back. And, uh, but it was years later, this happened in 79 in 1985 uh, we brought Continental back to Knoxville, and uh, I put into my into my company at that point uh, into my wrestling talent pool. Uh, I, I brought Ron Wright back into the talent pool uh, because I really don't know why, to be honest with you. But uh, I think it's because Ron Wright was it's his home. He's an East Tennessee guy from up there in the Tri Cities. Kingsport, Johnson City, Bristol, in that area up there in the northeastern part of Tennessee. And I uh, just, I felt like it was the right thing to do. Uh, a lot of those others, I never hired them back. Uh, they never worked for me again. And uh, I think this, the other part of it was, uh, who would I like to take into Pensacola? That was it, I think, right? Yeah, well, well before we get there, I got to ask you, though, you never hired any of them back beyond Ron Wright. Did any of them ever approach you about hiring them back? Uh, yes. Uh, and I felt that, that, that event in 1979 really affected me. Uh, it, it bothered me tremendously. I had always had a great relationship with my crews and the people that worked for me. They always seemed to enjoy themselves, had great dressing rooms, uh, in which the atmosphere was electric. People were happy. Uh, it was a wonderful place to be. Everybody wanted to work for me because 
of the way we handle business and, and how, how they were paid. And uh, we were doing things right. And they were being successful and making money in these territories. And Knoxville, as an example, it was a fabulous little territory. It, the longest trip was less than two hours. And one way, I mean, and, and they were making as much money as guys were making in Florida that were driving a thousand miles a week. They were making as much as guys that were living in, in Nashville and working for Jared in Memphis. Uh, they were driving 1500 miles a week. They were doing as much in, in just small being home by midnight every night, never having to stay over. Uh, working televisions right there at home, not having but one TV to work. There were so many reasons that that territory was just phenomenal, and guys just loved it like crazy. And so, you know, I did. They they wanted to come back. A couple of them did. Uh, I had a hard time forgiving them, uh, and some of them. I, I'll be quite honest with you, Brian, and and I kind of hate to say this, but it's really true. I didn't forgive a couple of them until, geez, 2015 uh, at the reunion. I went to the reunion every year in Mobile, Alabama. It's called the Gulf Coast Wrestling Reunion. And Ronnie Garvin and uh, Bob Orton Jr., a couple of those guys were there. And and I saw them, and we hadn't spoken uh, you know, in a long, long time, many, many years from 79 to 2015, 2016, something that's a lot of years. And I, I sat down with both of those guys and, and, and we mended defenses. We talked and, and we kind of, uh, you know, uh, we, we made amends to each other as best we could. You know, I, I really believe that good Lord wants us to forgive people and I think it's important that we do that. And I felt like I hadn't seen them face to face and just seeing them face to face. I felt like it's time. It's time to put an end to this. And uh, and I think they felt the same way. We left there from that reunion with uh, I left there with different feelings toward those guys. Did you know they were going to be there? Were you nervous going into it? No, I did not know they were going to be there. Uh, but I don't think it would have made me nervous. I think, you know, I, I had I changed. My attitude had changed. It had been a lot of years since all that went down. And and uh, and like I said, I just think the good Lord wants us to forgive. And, and I think it was important. And once I saw them there, I could have avoided them. And it, I could have, it could have been a different outcome. But I'm at a point of going and looking them up and sitting down and, and, and settling it, uh, so that, so that, and I felt much better about it. And then actually, uh, and I went to a couple of these after with that and uh, I actually, uh, I, I hugged her necks and, you know, we're, we're back to being somewhat friends again. And I, I think that's vitally important. I think that's tremendous. And I actually didn't know all the details of that story. And I'm sure it is something we will touch upon again in the future, but of the guys who tried to take Southeastern from you in 79, Bob Roop, Bob Orton Jr., the great Malenko, Ron Garvin, Ron Wright, of those five guys right there, who would you have liked to have been able to bring to the South End, to Pensacola, if things had worked out a little differently, who would have done the best in the Pensacola area for you? Uh, that's another great part of this question. Actually, any of those. 
I mean, those were great guys, uh, great talents, all of them. Uh, but the one I think that would have gotten over better and, and would have just did the same thing for me he did in Knoxville is uh, Ronnie Garvin. Uh, Ronnie Garvin and I, you know, we, we've talked about it, this program here. This is Ronnie Garvin and I, and I'm just green. I'm I'm in my first year in the business, and Ronnie Garvin is is leading me and teaching me and training me. Uh, I just had such respect for his talent, and uh, when he came to Knoxville, he got over tremendously. I knew he would, uh, and he becomes one of my top guys. He starts out as a heel. He's going to switch to babyface, heel or babyface. He was phenomenal. And I just, if he had gone to Pensacola, he would have been a monster star there. He would have made a lot of money. Uh, what happened to those guys is, is they got out of the loop. They fell out of, out of favor and they weren't taken there. And gosh, we did tremendous business in Knoxville but nothing like what we did in Pensacola. They would have made so much more bread if that hadn't happened in 79. I'd have probably taken all of those guys. At one point or another, they would have all been down there, and it would have changed their lives as well. Uh, but I'd have to say Ronnie Garvin would have been the guy that I could have done more with than, than, than any of them that, in that group. As we wrap things up, a few notes here at the end of the program. Of course, you can go and like the stud on Facebook. The page is Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. That is the only page that you can actually connect with the Tennessee stud. Once again, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. Of course, you could follow the stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me each week on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com, wherever you find your favorite podcast, classic wrestling talk, and wrestling humor, the 605 Super Podcast. I want to invite you to visit the website of the Tennessee Stud, which of course is tnstud.com. You can access the Studcast, the Super Studcast, the Stud Store for official Tennessee Stud t-shirts and photos, as well as the gallery for fantastic photos and much, much more, tnstud.com. And don't forget, if you have not listened to any of the Super Studcasts, fans are raving about the fantastic Bob Armstrong Super Studcast, as well as the rest of the Bob Armstrong story. All of these tremendous podcasts are like nothing else you could hear, and they're only available to patrons of the Studcast. Over three hours each month of exclusive content for only $2.99. Go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast ron before we completely close the door this week where are we going next week and pick a winner for the questions okay um yeah i've got to take that second question i've got to take that gentleman don't remember his name the alaskan guy david i mean that's a that's a that's a tremendous question one of the best uh, i can remember being asked really really good and uh thank you very much uh uh Mr. Trailer out of uh, Anchorage, Alaska. My gosh, you know, and uh, I hope it's I hope it's not cold up there, you know. And <laughs> that's that's pretty far north, I can tell you that. And uh, next week, you know, I, I, I'm going to stay pretty much. Uh, I'm going to continue with this. I'm I'm like a local promoter now, and 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 in these studcasts in the future, I'm going to talk 
regularly somewhat about what's going on with the promotions that I'm trying to do and what I'm learning. And, and I think that's important to fans. I want to give fans a concept of what it's all about and how it was all put together and how it was all done, what made success and what didn't. And uh, so I'm going to be coming back consistently to being that local promoter, but we're going to take our first trip ever to the Bahamas, which is, gosh, fabulous stuff. I mean, uh, one of my favorite topics, it's it's the craziest place on earth, one of the craziest places on earth to be a wrestler and to be in that atmosphere. And uh, so we're going to take the first time that we I ever went to the Bahamas. We're going to talk about the first night. And actually about this time frame, uh, Rob is going to join the territory. He's going to come out of Tennessee and we're going to start beginning to do some tag matches, which we haven't done since we started and separated. And he went to Tennessee and I went to Florida and we're going to, we're going to be uh, starting to work our way to, to, to being champions, to our first championship and should be very interesting. I look forward to it. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.